Minority and low-income military veterans tend to move more than other veterans, and often they cross state lines, which makes it harder for state governments to identify them. That's according to research by the credit and identity services firm TransUnion. For the implications of veterans' migrations, TransUnion's director of research and consulting, Greg Schlichter. Mr. Schlichter, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Tell us about this research. What were you trying to discover and what did you find out here? Well, you know, it's no surprise, I think, to your listeners that government agencies have been under pressure to shift to a customer first mindset and rework customer experiences to improve accessibility, efficiency, uh, security. And one of the agencies that is making large strides in that area is the VA. That's the federal VA. Now, their mandate to improve customer experiences is trickling down to state veterans departments. And we were wondering, what are some of those big pain points when it comes to the customer experiences that are overseen by state veterans departments? And while we were doing our research, what we came to realize was what we think one of the biggest problems facing states veterans departments is, is that they just don't know much about their veteran population. They don't know how many veterans are in their states. They don't know how to contact them. They don't know quite what services they might be more or less interested in. And so what we did to suss out that hypothesis is do an analysis of what we call veteran mobility. We were really just looking at veteran relocation across state lines to understand how often veterans are moving into new jurisdictions and how that compares to non-veterans. And what was your methodology for determining that? What we really did was analyze the information we have available to us as a credit bureau, so people's credit files, you can see change of address, as well as some alternative data assets. So think, you know, utility bills, sometimes payday loans, car registrations, all that fun stuff to just get a sense of how often are people moving across state lines. And we looked over the past five years. So we have a little bit of pre-pandemic, pandemic, and, and post-pandemic in there. And you were also able to determine some of the characteristics of those that are the most mobile or the most migratory, let's say, in terms of their income and ethnicity? Let's unpack that for a second here. Our headline finding is that veterans moved across state lines at more than double the rate of non-veterans over the past five years. So if you look at the past three years, let's say, the veteran population, our sample, about 6% of them moved. And that compares to about 2.5% of non-veterans. So a little more than double the rate. That disparity was particularly pronounced within certain demographic groups, notably racial and ethnic minorities, low-income veterans, and non-homeowning veterans, who, again, were closer to three times more likely than their non-veteran peers to have moved across state lines. And we're talking about people that have moved or relocated while they are veterans. That is to say, they didn't leave their military location and move across state lines. Correct, correct. So what we did was look for people who were separated from service. And when we're talking about moves to different locations, we excluded anything that was what we call a military-affiliated address. So like a zip code that's obviously a base or you know, sure. right around a base or you're going to Guam or something like that. And how much of this is simply older veterans retiring to Florida or Arizona or wherever, you know, the place they want to go? So that is certainly part of it from what we're seeing. We did not specifically analyze 
point to point moves. So not looking at who's moving from point A and going to point B. But what we found of particular note would be two things. One is that across all age bands, we looked at veterans 30 to 70, age 30 to 70, across all of those ages, the veteran group was more likely to move than the non-veteran group. So your 65 to 70 year old veterans were more likely to move than 65 to 70 year old non-veterans. The second thing that we noticed as well is that predominantly the movers we're seeing are younger younger veterans. I I think these are people who are recently separating from service and are trying to figure out where do they want to start a career? Where do they want to put down roots? Where do they want to begin to build their lives? We're speaking with Greg Schlichter. He's director of research and consulting at TransUnion. And so what is the implication of this? For example, is there a revenue sharing or revenue transfer from the federal government to state veterans agencies such that if you don't get a good headcount, you don't get a good, accurate amount of money from the federal government? Absolutely. States are allocated federal funds proportionate to their veteran population, and those assist with service delivery, with just program administration, things like that. I think another benefit to having an accurate headcount and accurate contact information, not just a number, but how to reach these people, That helps veterans departments also be better community partners. That type of intelligence can enable them to assist nonprofits, universities, local businesses with their own veteran engagement efforts. And what about the VA itself, the federal VA? Is there any practical effect of this migratory pattern on it? I think so. The VA or even the DOD is the agency of record when it comes to not only people's service records, but also potentially their current contact information. And if you think about that 6% statistic I referenced earlier, 6% of the veterans we saw had moved state lines over the past three years. If we spin it a different way, it means that the veteran administrations or the DOD's contact information for 6% of their veterans is potentially out of date. And that just creates a whole host of problems when you think about federal efforts to engage constituents and improve experiences and and all that sort of stuff. All right. So how do you find the veterans? I guess I'm leading to the fact that TransUnion happens to have a product in this area. We do. We have a proprietary method for finding veterans that I don't think I can go too in the weeds on. But I can tell you as a proof point, we are currently working with three states on this product that we call Veteran Connect. And in those engagements with those states, what we're seeing is we're able to provide headcounts and contact information for 120% or so of the estimated in-state veteran population. So that means we're finding more in-state veterans than the states themselves thought they had, and we're able to tell you how to contact them. Well, at some point, some states are going to have less because everybody can't have 120%. (laughs) Luckily, we're on the upper end of that 100% mark. And where are there more, generally, more veterans than they thought? Tell us some of the states. I can't tell you the states we're working with. And again, our analysis was not designed to track point-to-point movement. But what I can tell you, and again, caveat, this could be a sampling error because we weren't set up to do this. We are seeing a slight preference amongst veterans for moving to exurb and rural locations compared to their non-veteran peers. City outskirts, and what about north, south, east, west, southwest, northeast, southwest? 
east, west, whatever. <laughs> the migratory pattern we saw does follow those of the general U.S. population. So I believe it was California has been seeing a pretty significant outflow of people and they're moving to places like Texas, I know has been a big attractor, Florida. And that's affecting, I think, every U.S. citizen, not, not just veterans in particular. Interesting. And I imagine then this type of lookup service or this type of migratory research can apply to a lot of other federal agencies. I think it could. If, if there is a population that you need to track and there's this operational model where you've got a kind of a federal overseer and a bunch of state franchises, having this sort of information can ease information flows and make sure everyone has the most up-to-date contact information, the most up-to-date, it's called market sizing information for the populations they are trying to serve. Greg Schlichter is Director of Research and Consulting at TransUnion. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the research at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and 
How do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, the, describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed 
Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.